in a sermon series that we're calling the neighbor's table the neighboring sermon series and for several weeks now we've been in the gospel of luke our scripture passage today is from luke chapter 10 the very first part of luke chapter 10 but i want you to know before uh before we read it before i read it for you that in luke chapter 9 Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. The very first verses of Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and he sends them out with these instructions. He says, take nothing with you. When you go into a town, stay in a home and stay in that home until you leave the town. And then he says, if you're not welcome, then leave and shake the dust off of your feet. And then these words... In chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, the very beginning of chapter 10, and and I'm going to read to you from uh, the message by Eugene Peterson. This is how Eugene Peterson tells the story that happens at the beginning of chapter 10. Later, Jesus, the master, selected 70, and he sent them ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he intended to go. He gave them this charge. What a huge harvest! And how few the harvest hands. So on your knees, ask the God of the harvest to send harvest hands. On your way, but be careful. This is hazardous work. You're like lambs in a wolf pack. Travel light, comb and toothbrush, and no extra luggage. Don't loiter and make small talk with everyone you meet on the way. When you enter a home, greet the family peace. If your greeting is received, then it's a good place to stay, but if it's not received, take it back and get out. Don't impose yourself. Stay at one home. Take your meals there, for a worker deserves three square meals. Don't move from house to house looking for the best cook in town. (laughs) When you enter a town and are received, eat what they set before you, Heal anyone who is sick and tell them God's kingdom is right on your doorstep. When you enter a town and you are not received, go out in the street and say, the only thing we got from you is this dirt on our feet and we're giving it back. Did you have any idea that God's kingdom was right on your doorstep? This is the story of God for the people of God. Would you say with me, thanks be to God. So right as Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem for the journey towards the crucifixion, he sends out 70. So in chapter 10, it's more than chapter 9. In chapter 9, it's 12. In chapter 10, it's 70. And you can trace the number 70 to a few places in the Hebrew Bible. But the very first time that you see this number 70 in the Hebrew Bible in our Old Testament. The very earliest occurrence of it is in Genesis chapter 10. After the flood, 70 nations on the earth spread over the earth. So Jesus's words of guidance are for for all who will carry the good news to their corner of the world. So these words of guidance are not just for a particular small crowd of 70 people in the first century. But these words of guidance are for you and for me also as we carry the good news into our own corners of the world. 
The instruction begins with two word pictures. There are two different metaphors in this scripture passage. And the first is of a plentiful harvest that is in need of workers. And the message that comes with this word picture is this is urgent. N.T. Wright says that this is how you or I might think of a doctor who schedules emergency surgery for a loved one. When that happens in our lives, the surgery becomes the priority, right? Everything else falls away. So this is a huge harvest with just a few hands to bring it in. And this means that this is important, abundant, overwhelming work that is set before us. And it requires our immediate attention. It becomes the priority. The second picture, the second word picture is of a lamb among wolves. And I personally think this is a really bad idea. You know, the wolf is the natural predator of sheep. A wolf looks at a lamb and sees dinner, right? So a good shepherd, Jesus is a good shepherd. A good shepherd wouldn't put lambs in a wolf pack, or don't they? I I can remember the first time that my two-and-a-half-year-old went to Mother's Day out. She was two-and-a-half years old, and, and her class was here at the church, where I worked, and I really liked that arrangement because I could regularly peek in the window of her classroom and check on her. There she was, a lamb in a pack of wolves, right? Other two-and-a-half-year-olds. And then there's that jump, that jump that happens between preschool and elementary school where I used to hide out in the library. And when my kids were in elementary school, I'd hide out in the library and I'd reshelve books as a volunteer so I could check on my little lambs. And then there's that first day of middle school, right? That first day of middle school where I would help my child pack up a backpack, making sure that he also had a plan for the cafeteria at the middle school and hoping he would see a, a friendly face when he was changing classes. Because I know that wolf packs seem to thrive in junior high. But what I've noticed, what I've noticed is that my children seem to get something big. They get something big from being sheep among wolves. Taking a calculated, supervised risk. They get a little more strength, a little more maturity, a few more friends, some good teachers, and mentors. And when that happens, something inside of me as a parent says, that looks like the kingdom of God. I recognize that. The kingdom of God is rolling out. Have you ever experienced this thought? I don't like it, but I know it's for the best. It's not my favorite thought. My very favorite thought probably sounds more like, that feels good. But Jesus doesn't use that feels good with his disciples or with his 70 followers. He doesn't use metaphors of rainbows and unicorns when he sends them out. It's a harvest, and it's lambs among wolves. 
He doesn't send the 70 out on a vacation. He sends the 70 out as witnesses to the work of the kingdom. The scripture teaches me that when I think, I don't like it, but I know it's for the best. I don't like it, but I know things are going to work out. The chances are pretty good that I'm witnessing the rolling out of the kingdom of God. Because when I think, I don't like it, but I know it's for the best, that means that change is happening. And change is always unsettling. But when there is also that sense of assurance, the sense that something good is coming, something good is happening, that's God's kingdom at work. Father Richard Rohr says that God's only job description is creation out of nothing. Creating out of nothing. He says that this then leads to the problem of good. So the problem of good, you see it in your lives when you meet somebody or when you come across someone who has had a terrible, horrible childhood, and yet they have this deep faith and a really good um, compassion that they exercise with other people. There's no reason that goodness should thrive in their lives, and yet it does. It's there. The problem of good. We all hear about the problem of evil, but maybe it's this problem of good that might be an equal or greater issue for our atheist friends. Because this problem of good is evidence of the creator, that the creator is still at work creating, creating something out of nothing. Followers of Christ know that creation is always happening. We know that good is persistent that the kingdom of God is always before us. So it's urgent that you and I get out there to witness it and to join in what's happening. So here's the key for the lambs that are sent out in a plentiful harvest. Here's the key that what makes the risk calculated, what makes it worth taking, is that we find a partner. That we don't do the work alone. Jesus sends the 70 out in pairs. He sends them on ahead, but they're going in twos. And then also in these first 11 verses of chapter 10, you can find pairs all over the ideas that come out in Scripture. So here's what I mean. There are two metaphors in this passage. There's the metaphor of the harvest, and there's the metaphor of the lamb among the sheep. I mean, the lamb among the wolves. And then there are two responses that the 70 who are sent out might get. They might get this response of acceptance, and they also might get this response of rejection. And then another pair is that there are two entrances in Jesus' instruction to the 70. They're going to enter a town, and then they're going to enter a home. And then there is this phrase, the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom is right on your doorstep. And that is written twice, twice in this passage. So there are pairs not only among the 70 who go out, but there are pairs of ideas in this passage. So the teaching is get a partner. Don't do this work alone. When I was a child... 
My parents would often refer to any friend that we had around our house as our partner in crime. And and there was this one kid that was around our house a lot, and for him, the title partner in crime just seemed like an accurate title. I remember his name still this, to this day, 40 years later. His name was Ben Fay because when there was trouble brewing, Ben Fay was always there. So much so that when he was nowhere in sight, when he wasn't at our house, but he was miles across town in his own home and something went awry in our home and my parents would ask, who did this? We would respond, well, Ben Fay did it, of course. Yeah, he was always to blame. A partner in the kingdom is different from a partner in crime. A partner in crime takes the blame. Or a partner in crime is to blame. But a partner in the kingdom is someone that you turn to and you ask the question, how do we get ourselves out of this mess? How do we get ourselves out of this change, out of this transition? We need these people because change is a part of the kingdom unfolding right before our eyes. It's very unsettling. And if we're surrounded by a pack of wolves, we need to know how to make it. We need to be able to discern our way through And so the gospel teaches that every kingdom explorer does not do the work of exploration alone, but every kingdom explorer needs a partner. We do this work together. And so here's what you're looking for. Here's what you're looking for with your partner. You can find it in verses 5 and 6 in this scripture passage. Uh, Jesus says to the 70 that he sends out in pairs, he says this, when you enter a house, say peace, peace be in this house. And if anyone is in there who shares this peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. So what you're looking for when you go out on the journey is you're looking for peace. This would be an unusual message for Jesus's contemporaries. Jesus's contemporaries don't want peace, not immediately, not with the Samaritans, not with the Romans. The people around Jesus want, they want an immediate and a general, generous helping of justice. That's what they want doled out. They want a setting of people straight and an elimination of their enemies. And so I can imagine that as Jesus gathers this group of 70 to send out, they could have easily have been persuaded to go on down the road and proclaim judgment and the wrath that is to come. But Jesus doesn't send them out to proclaim judgment. Instead, Jesus sends them out and he tells them, be in search of peace. Look for peace. And he says, if you're not welcome, if you go into a house or a town where you're not welcome, then so be it then just shake the dust off your feet. And that means make your departure brief. Judgment is not yours to speak. Judgment belongs to Jesus. The messengers are not authorized to judge. The preachers are not authorized to give words of judgment. Remember that. You're going to want to remind me, I'm sure, in a week or two. Preachers don't judge. The messengers search for peace. The Art of Neighboring book 
says to be on the lookout in your own neighborhood for a person of peace. And a person of peace is someone who's hospitable. It's someone who's open to friendship. Someone who undoubtedly has a large network of relationships. A person of peace is an influencer. Someone who just has a heart for people. Probably someone I imagine with a well-worn table. Because people sit at their kitchen table with them and pour out their lives to them. When a small group of us traveled from this church to Burundi in Africa, our main task there was to teach the pastors who were in in Burundi at a conference. But every day that we were a part of that conference, at least once a day, we were given a break. And during that break time, we were taken off into a room where there was a table And the bishop would preside, the bishop of Burundi would preside at that table um, or one of the lead pastors in Burundi. And that was where we would have coffee and tea and a few snacks. And we would talk, but that was a little tricky because there was this language barrier between us and them. And to me, it just seemed, it seemed difficult. It seemed like chit chat. I wondered if it was just a waste of time because there were certainly other things that we could have been accomplishing if our translators were present, and I'm certain that there were urgent situations that the bishop could have been tending to himself. He certainly could have had other people provide snacks for us and coffee for us. But to him, the table took precedence. The table was important. And I think it's because he knew that the peace between us was significant, that the peace between us was important. One of the very last things that Jesus did before the crucifixion was that he took the place of a person of peace at the table with his disciples. He spoke to them words of peace, Words of reconciliation and words of provision. And he invited his disciples to continue in that tradition. Remember that our Lord and Savior, he took bread, he gave thanks to the Father, and he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 